2: Hey, before we get started, you guys, these live shows—they're coming up this week. I'm going to be in Chicago on uh, Sunday, November twelfth, three o'clock at the Hideout with this American Life's Zoe Chase. And I will be in San Francisco, November fifteenth, at the Swedish American Hall with Kara Swisher. And there will be links in the show notes for this show for both of those live shows. Now here's the show. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Evan Ratliff of The Atavist, Max's very noisy dog, and Max Linsky from Longform. Hey, guys. Hi, Reba. Reba back for the rare podcast appearance. Interrupting the podcast like it's 2012 out here. (laughs) Um, Who'd you have on the show today? This week on the show, I had Jody Cantor, who, along with uh, Megan Tui published a story in the New York Times that was the first podcast. big break in the Harvey Weinstein story. I kind of thought that I shouldn't try to get her on the show immediately and I should wait till it simmered down a little bit and then talk to her about the whole arc of what had happened. Uh, The story did not simmer down at all. And uh, if anything, uh, I think she said she feels like there's like more of it to come now than there was then. Uh, But it was really fascinating to talk to her about it. Um, We talked a lot about the... like technical process by which she corroborated these stories and also, uh, what it's like to write when you know, uh, that part of the intended reaction of your writing is to cause subsequent actions, which then will need to be covered themselves. Which it, uh, did, which it very much did. uh, Beyond what any story that you could imagine. I think even beyond her, um, you know, estimation of, of where this could go. Yeah. Their reporting has changed the world. Wow. Max. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say something definitive. Epic Max voice. <laughs> uh, hey, Evan, on my way here on the public transportation, I was just reading the new Atavist story. Is that right? Promethea Unbound. It's it's one of our best, I think. I, aggr- uh, I agree with this. Yeah, it's out now. It's about a child genius who was... On her way to potentially great things, she was like the kid who visited the Stanford Linear Accelerator when she was five years old, and like asked crazy questions about it and stuff like that. Like you see, about, you see stories of this kid, and then her life took an insane turn. Uh, and uh, it's it's a really. A beautiful story. I I I like the way you navigated the no spoiler elements there. I probably if you had let me run, I was probably gonna spoil. I was about to spoil it myself. But just go check it out. It's at magazine.adivis.com. Evan's got years and years of no spoiler training. Uh, you this this man I you've never spoiled in my presence. <laughs> If you've got spoiler alerts to distribute in an email newsletter, you probably should put that newsletter onto MailChimp. It's reliable, it's affordable, and uh, they're just good people. Thanks to the people at MailChimp.
1: They're also the reason the show exists.
2: That, and that's all, that also that too. Epic Mac voice. <laughs> and now here's Aaron with Jody Cantor. Hey, a couple of notes before we get started here. Uh, I wanted to say that while we did talk about the other reporters who were pursuing this case in this interview, I didn't specifically ask Jody about Ronan Farrow. Uh, if you haven't read any of Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey's reporting on this case and you've been living in a cave, I recommend you read it and Ronan Farrow's reporting for The New Yorker to get the full story brings me to my second point, which is that this interview was taped before Ronan Farrow published a story which detailed how Harvey Weinstein's attorneys hired private investigators to target journalists, including Jody Cantor. That would have been interesting to talk about, too. But this case is moving so rapidly, we were sure to miss something. Okay, here it is. Welcome, Jody Cantor. Thank you. You wrote a story about Harvey Weinstein how long ago now? Three three to four weeks ago?
0: That's about right.
2: My initial plan was just going to let this saucepan simmer down a little bit, wait till uh, the fat congeals, and then... I'll ask Jody to talk about it. That did not really happen. In fact, actually, um, as I was preparing for this interview, someone who works in this podcast texted me a new article that came out today about this. So this story is very much alive in the present tense.
0: I think the story is getting bigger, not smaller.
2: Bigger. Okay, so you would say we have not even reached the uh, the top of the mountain uh, in terms of this story.
0: I think it's like a wave that hasn't receded yet. Interesting. I think more women are coming forward. We published a story today Hmm. with new assault allegations against Harvey Weinstein, and those date back to the 1970s. And so the timeline is now 40 years And also, the uh, people are coming forward about other figures in other industries on a daily basis. Before I went to bed last night, I said to myself, I wonder what the new story will be tomorrow. And I went to sleep, and I woke up this morning, and the Kevin Spacey allegations had broken.
2: Is this the um, response you expected?
0: So there's a group of sources who I always thought were wrong. I sat through a lot of interviews, and so did my partner, Megan Toohey, over the summer, we kind of jaded Hollywood executives, former Weinstein and Miramax employees, said things to us like, oh, Jody, everybody's known about this for decades. It's an open secret. Nobody cares. Nobody's ever cared. They would also tell us that, like, the Times was going to kill the story, which was ridiculous. And then they would say things like, you're going to publish your little story and life will go on. So I'm very glad to know that those people are wrong and i also think that as a journalist there's almost always a point at which somebody tries to talk you out of the idea that you have a story and it's really important to listen to them not literally not obviously they're they're trying to kind of gaslight you and convince you that you don't have something that you know you have but i think there's always a clue somewhere in there that that teaches you about the greater meaning of the story so those people i think are are totally wrong i'm glad they're wrong because I I don't think this just happened. I think that there's a lot we invested in this, and there's a lot the times invested in this journalistically. And so, while I'm staggered by the reaction, I'm also satisfied. By it because this is why we wake up in the morning, right? I mean, this is why I come to work. The Part of the idea of investigative journalism is to take things that are really hard to talk about and make them easier to talk about. And that seems to be happening a little bit.
2: I want to talk to you about your whole career, not just I know that this probably feels like a giant thing right now, but you've also been uh, at the center of big stories before um, that have involved powerful, famous people. But let's go a little bit through the Weinstein thing first. Um, You cited sort of two periods uh, right now, which is this rolling snowball period and a period in the middle where it seemed like maybe less clear exactly what course this is going to take. Let's go back further to when you very first started working on this story. Um, So how did the story come to you?
0: So the Times has made a really big investment in sexual harassment reporting this year. And I will stop right here and say that if you're listening to this and if you've paid your X number of dollars a month to be a New York Times subscriber, you paid for this because this was long and this was hard and it took a lot of resources. And it involved a pretty big team. And I think the sort of natural place to date things is to really talk about the O'Reilly reporting that Emily Steele and Mike Schmidt did. Last spring, they they uncovered the fact that Bill O'Reilly had settled a long string of allegations by women, and they revealed that. And I think for us at the paper, it was kind of a wake-up call. Not that sexual harassment existed, because of course we knew that. But I think we took a moment and we said, we have this unique power as investigative journalists to put the puzzle pieces together because it's very hard for any one woman to come forward on her own. Even though we're now in a kind of Me Too moment, even now it's still pretty hard for women as individuals to come forward alone. But if we go back and we say, where's the settlement trail? Where are the legal and financial records? Um, How can we trace this? How can we determine whether there was a pattern of allegations here? Then we can play kind of a unique role in bringing these stories to light. So Emily and Mike did that. And then the editors asked me to do reporting. And they said. You know, essentially, also Katie Benner did a really important story about women in Silicon Valley, uh, women who were entrepreneurs who were pressured inappropriately by investors for sex. Uh, I,
2: I had like, there's been so many of these stories that I had totally, I mean, those were both big stories and I feel like, not that I forgot them, but it's been a lot in all in one year.
0: But those were really important because they helped give us a playbook and they helped convince us that we were onto something. And also- I want to go back to your question of how I got to Weinstein. But when I was talking to the Weinstein sources, those stories gave my sources hope. Because as I was, as Megan and I were reporting this summer, we were able to go back and say, hey, listen, the Times executed the O'Reilly stories well. uh, The Silicon Valley stories went well. uh, We were able to document things. The women were believed, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, so the editors came to me and said, what do you think – are the big sexual harassment stories in America that are going untold. And I had done, you know, years of kind of gender-oriented reporting at this point. So I had heard some things and I had some ideas, but I did some reporting. And I came back pretty quickly and I said, we have to try Weinstein. And it felt like Mount Everest because so many great journalists had tried before us. And it was... As many people have noticed now, it was kind of hiding in plain sight. It was both strangely public with jokes about it in popular culture, and yet it had never been documented. So I was wary, but I I felt like we had to try.
2: How does your job work at the New York Times?
0: So I'm an investigative and enterprise reporter. I basically do long projects um, like I did this big story on Amazon a couple of years ago with David Streitfeld which was another kind of long workplace investigation and you know a couple of years ago I decided to try to do as much hard hitting gender reporting as I could and I wouldn't say I write exclusively about gender but it's played a role in a lot of my stories and The reason why is that I felt that what the gender debate needed in the United States that we could contribute was more reporting. There were a lot of feelings, right? If you go back to like Hillary's loss in 2008 or the lean-in moment, there were a million op-eds. There were a lot of women writing about their personal truths. But I felt like if I, in some small, small, small way, could help move gender progress forward and help make the debate richer, it was through bringing new information to light.
2: In the case of the Weinstein story, because there was a significant amount of previous journalism on the topic, and as you said, it was an open secret what did you feel like you needed to bring to light that had not previously been brought to light in this story? What did you see as the key things you needed to get to make this story work?
0: So I think I would disagree with uh. your premise a little bit in that there had n- there had been journalistic attempts, but nobody had nailed the story of what Harvey Weinstein had done to women. I When we were working on it, I felt like Megan and I were in that scene in the movie where like – the soldiers or the knights or whatever, are um, tiptoeing across this field and it's strewn with the the fallen bodies or the skeletons of the people who came before. Because I knew that all of these big names and magazine journalists had tried to do this story and there were almost like urban legends of, you know, this story was killed or that story was killed. So on the one hand, there was a storyline on 30 Rock about Harvey Weinstein's treatment towards women, and it was joked about in 2013 at the Oscar nominations. But there had never been what we would consider like a real story story.
2: What challenges did that pre-existing minefield present to you?
0: Cynicism on the part of sources, on the part of women. Oh Jody, I get a call about this every two years. I've talked to some of the reporters, but you know, nobody gets anywhere. It was incredible the way even though Harvey Weinstein was less powerful in Hollywood than he had once been, people still had this conviction that he could do something like get a story at the New York Times killed. So people would say to me, "Oh Jody, one day your editor will just appear at your desk and give you a new assignment." And I would want to say to them, no, 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 you don't understand Rebecca Corbett and Dean McKay and Arthur Salzberger and everybody is completely behind this project. But there was a lot of disbelief. And then, you know, the the funny thing about the story is that when I started – I thought it was possible that we were just correcting the history in terms of things that had happened in the past. I thought it was maybe a story about the 1990s and kind of Miramax at its height and the movies we all remember and what really happened back then. And I thought that would be fine. I thought that would be a great story. And then in the course of the reporting, the moral kind of gravity of the story really shifted for Megan and I once we began to find out about incidents in 2014, 2015, the Lauren O'Connor memo we got, which detailed a kind of pervasive culture of sexual harassment at the Weinstein Company. And that, for us, was the journalistic aha moment of saying, these allegations never stopped coming. And when we published the first story, we thought we had a 30-year timeline. Now the timeline we know is longer.
2: When you're in a situation like that where there's been media meddling, right, like People were wrong to think that someone at the New York Times was going to tap you on the shoulder and say you've got a new assignment. But they were right to think that there were some people who that worked for. And they were also right to think uh, that gossip columnists, various other people in the media had actually helped keep this story under wraps. So when you're in a situation like that where no one is to be trusted, I guess would be my conclusion from that, How do you tell your sources, I'm not one of those people, I'm someone different? How do you represent your intentions to a source?
0: It's such a good question. You see them in person whenever possible. You have track record, both personally and institutionally. Megan, Tui, and I wrote a joint bio that we sent to sources because we wanted to convey that we were serious. And, you know, we had a really interesting combination of skill sets. Megan has done... More stories about sexual abuse, criminal situations, et cetera, et cetera. And I've done more workplace stories about serious mistreatment of women in the workplace. But we were to, we put together this like pretty hard hitting bio that left everything else out about our careers. There was no like Obamas in it. There was uh, we left many things out, and it basically just said. Jodie and Megan have devoted their careers to reporting on women and children and we listed the impact that the stories we had done in the past had had you know in my case it was big corporations changing their policies In Megan's case uh, she's actually done stories that have led to people going to prison and what we wanted to say is you know we are not messing around Hey, I'm going to pause things here
2: briefly to give you a word from our sponsor, Eero, I love Eero. I have my whole house set up for Eero Wi Fi. Uh, What is so good about Eero Wi Fi? If you have a weird space like I do, I have a basement studio where I record my own podcast. It was impossible to get Wi Fi down there with a traditional single router model. Instead, I got these cool pods from Eero. Um, The second generation ones actually just came out. The second generation Eros, you can sit them flat and plug them in with a power adapter. They're even faster and have even more range. Seriously, Every time someone tells me that they are having Wi-Fi problems, rather than trying to fix those problems, I just tell them to get Eero. It's a distributed system. It's got a great app that lets you manage it. The setup is totally easy. You just put them in different places in your house and it tells you where to put them. If you have any trouble, they've got amazing customer support. So if you'd like to learn more, I'd encourage you to go to Eero.com. That's eero.com. Select overnight shipping and then put in the promo code Longform and that will make it free. That's right, free overnight shipping to US and Canada again. Eero.com, code Longform. As soon as tomorrow, you could have beautiful Wi-Fi blanketing your entire abode. Thank you, Eero. Here I am back with Jody Cantor. <laughs> One of the parts of the story that's shocking is just the physical graphic detail and how much of it there is. And the other part of the reporting that really stuck with me was the reporting that said, and this woman who had been pursuing a career in Hollywood decided not to do that. I know. And so was that something you were thinking? I mean, as a person who's reported on the workplace, where was your brain going with this story when you were thinking about what are the dimensions beyond Did he do it or not do it?
0: Oh, so many dimensions. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the women who decided not to get into the industry because of this. That's a really important part of the story. I'd say that there's almost a split between the famous people and the non-famous people in this story. Look, it really helped that we were able to get Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie on the record. And I think with them, with the really public people, The question I had in my mind was, what were we watching when we were watching the Oscars and when we were watching all of those movies? I mean, I'm like everybody else. I'm just like a movie fan, right? And I I was the arts and leisure editor of The Times for a certain point, so I got to see kind of this cultural stuff more up close. But I, um, like when Gwyneth told me her story, I thought back to Emma, you know, and then I've had sort of that similar thought many, many times And said to myself, we've we've now got, you know, 30 years of pop culture history under question. And is it possible to watch a Miramax movie now without wondering what really happened behind the scenes? With the non-famous people, they are incredibly telling. And at every, you know, turn, like in the paper and on Twitter and in interviews, I've said to people, please, 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 please read the stories of the non-famous women. Because I know that they're not as splashy and they don't get the tabloid coverage, but they are so telling and the power dynamics were even more skewed because there are a lot of alleged Weinstein victims who like this was their first acting job. They this barely had
2: on the an job. agent.
0: One of the women we wrote about Today Who Was Assaulted, she was a dancer on uh, – she was a dancer in Dirty Dancing to Havana Nights. So not somebody with any power in Hollywood.
2: Not working on a prestige Merrimax production.
0: Yeah, exactly. And um, there – as the sort of number of accounts – Started to accrue, we were struck by the number of women who got out of the business. So yeah, I mean, look, the big questions are right there, right? I mean, it's it's true in all of these industries where the sexual harassment stories are coming out now. Did it drive these women from the workplace? So, you know, what's the relationship between that and who's in power now? And then also the, just the lack of accountability. Um, I try not to become annoyed to the emotion of the story, even when I work on something for a really long time, and. I'm still really impassioned about the question of, you know, how did this guy rack up allegations for 40 years? It's staggering. It, that, Like, there is a kind of moral horror to it. And not only that, but he won so many awards and he was so applauded. He won humanitarian awards. And so I think the struggle to understand that is not over. And getting back to your point of these unknown women, like, you look at the way he was able to just rise and rise and rise unimpeded. And then there were these sort of female casualties of his alleged behavior who was who were kind of left on the side of the road.
2: At various times, other people had attempted this story. And for various reasons, either their versions didn't come out or they came out and did not make the full ripple. Um, but for you, you know, in terms of pushing out into uncharted territory – Did you have a yardstick for this is enough we publish when we have this much? Did the did the project have an end date attached to it? How did you know when to hit publish on it?
0: That was the question I really started asking myself within like a month or two of working on this story. And I thought it was really a question for the editors Hmm. more than even Megan and I, because I didn't know for sure, but I had intimations early on that this was really big, like that, the number of victims could eventually rise very high. And so I think what happened is that we got to the point where we felt like we had a lot. I mean, we had a settlement trail. We had, you know, dollar amounts. We had women on the record. We had internal Weinstein Company records. We had that kind of Sidewinder of a Lauren O'Connor memo, which documented incident after incident of sexual harassment. And then, you know, the most striking thing about the story at the point at which we published was that all of these women from all over the world, from different time periods, different capacities, you know, actresses, staff, whatever, they were all telling such similar stories. I mean, that was kind of mind-blowing. Like, if you did
2: that in I'd, fiction, I would be like, ah, come on.
0: Yeah, exactly. And even in interviews, um, it's become clear now that Weinstein had a real methodology. Yeah. And so the number of women who have said the same things to me about, like, he did this and then he did this and then he did this. And it was a little weird in interviews because I was trying so hard to, like, be at one with each source and to be completely sensitive and attuned and be like listening, you know, with the fullness with which you want to listen to these things. But part of me was sort of saying like I've Beverly Hills funny hotel. (laughs) (laughs) But like I've seen this movie before. I've been in this hotel room before. And I know what the next I know what the next plot point is.
2: Was that an I mean, are you as a reporter obligated to shield uh, the victims from each other's experiences.
0: So it's really interesting that you mention that. Um, Megan and I are kind of old school about the confidentiality of sources. And most of the women we were speaking to this summer did not know who else we were speaking to. And there are a lot of good reasons for doing things that way. Yeah. But an idea I toyed with that I never fully did is I did think, should we put some of these women in touch with one another behind the scenes? Because I did want to create a feeling of mutual support right. with people coming forward. There's, It's really risky, though, because, like, say, like, what if you do, like, a group text chain of confidential sources, and they know who each other are, but nobody else knows? What if one woman texts the whole chain, and she's like... I just talked to my lawyer, and he says that there's no way I can possibly come forward, and that Harvey Weinstein is going to hit me with a libel suit. You don't want that woman's anxiety to blow everybody else out of your story.
2: Alternately, um, I would imagine that there's a danger um, when you have a bunch of sources for the person Weinstein and the Miramax company. You don't necessarily want them to know everyone you're talking to. Absolutely and If not. everyone knows who, if everyone who you're talking to knows. Everyone you're talking to, than the Weinstein companies. We you've reported um, subsequently that Rose McGowan was offered a million dollars right. for her silence. I imagine that if the entire email threat had been offered a million dollars, there may have been some takers on totally. there. Totally. So let's talk about that a little bit. How at what point in this process did Weinstein slash the company? Find out about this investigation and start interacting with the reporting.
0: Pretty early. And also not just interacting with the reporting, but trying to keep people from talking to us.
2: Right. When someone um, has a job, say, at Miramax Company, and you ask to talk to them, and they say, I've explicitly been told not to do this, what do you tell a source in a situation like that?
0: I've thought a lot about this. It depends on what their issue is. You really have to learn what their concerns are and address them generally. For a lot of people, it was that they had signed an NDA uh, even years ago. And on that one, I both explain how improbable it is that that NDA would be enforced on this particular story. I can never guarantee, but I can make a pretty good case that it's not something to worry about. But also I make a moral case. I say NDAs are not intended to cover up abuse. When you sign that NDA, okay, you were like agreeing not to leak, you know, your company's movie release schedule to a competitor. You didn't say that you were gonna not speak up for fellow human beings who may have been suffering. I would almost like turn the tables on them and say, you're not gonna let the lawyers do that to you, right? But I, I do think NDAs are often just tools of intimidation, and I try, to, um, I try to make that clear. But then back to your question of how you get people to talk. It, it, see, it depends on who you're talking to. Are you talking to a victim or a witness?
2: Well, what if I'm sort of a v- witness slash victim? I'm someone who has knowledge of this these things. Basically, everyone who's part of the cover-up, you could argue, is... A little bit in both camps, maybe more in the witness camp, but um, people who've been asked professionally to help cover up this stuff and have a career stake in it. I mean, a lot of these stories are basically about people acting because they don't want to lose a job.
0: So for the people who have been gone a long time, who are not in a current workplace situation, I will often tell them that I can't change what happened to them years ago, but I can help them put their experience towards some productive constructive purpose. And that that comes in part from Megan Toohey, my partner. Um, and it's something we talked a lot about. And it's especially helpful when you're talking to people who have experienced some sort of deep pain over what happened, because what they're often afraid of is being re-traumatized in some sense. And you have to convince them that it may not be easy to come forward, but that they are doing a really constructive thing that they may be very proud of. And... There were a lot of people who helped us, who worked at Miramax and the Weinstein Company, who were in some sort of state of half-knowledge about what had gone on, but they were not completely okay with it, and they never had been, and so they were motivated to help us put the puzzle pieces together.
2: Did your experiences um, reporting on Amazon, which is a notoriously secretive company, um change how you would attack something like this? Oh, what, what absolutely. Is, what did you learn from getting inside a company that's as uh, ND8 out as possible?
0: I think so much of being a reporter is just about getting comfortable and seeming natural and owning what you want to say. And like when I think about the beginning of my career, I was afraid to even pick up the phone to a stranger. I think everybody is. But being a reporter really robs you of self-consciousness and shyness. And you realize that it's this great gift of being able to ask crazy questions, either really personal or very probing, or especially with the powerful, like to walk up to a Harvey Weinstein, essentially, and say, what have you been doing to women all of these years and for how long? And all of these other people may be afraid to confront you about it, but we are not. I mean, that is our job. I mean, in in a way, we get to play a role that other people would find socially very awkward, And so I think that part of the experience of the Amazon story, but really every other story I've done, is just working up that language and that confidence and that fluency to step into a stranger's life.
2: As someone coming in with a lot of experience in um, business reporting and taking on a case where sexual assault um, is the central events of the story— and not only where you need to know that it occurred, but pretty graphically mm-hmm. exactly what occurred. Was that new for you, trying to talk to people about that kind of stuff? And, and what did you learn um, about doing that kind of reporting in the course of it?
0: It's really hard. I never wanted the women to feel like we were after the lurid detail. I wanted them to feel that we were going to write respectfully about their experiences. What a lot of people who are very smart about these things say is that it's not about sex, it's about power. And I think the reporting should reflect that. I think on the one hand, it's really important to say what really happened. You don't want to shy. It would be pulling punches in a way to shy away from the violence and the degradation of what allegedly happened in those hotel rooms. Um,
2: It's also a big part of the narrative that had been sort of put forth was, yeah, he was like, Telling actresses that he could help their career if they slept with him, right? And the details of what happened in the hotel rooms are really like what's different than that narrative. There was established as yeah. a different narrative. But
0: then there are other women who don't want to go into detail. Like when I spoke to Angelina Jolie, she just did not want to get mm-hmm. into like. The gross details of you know whatever had or hadn't happened she wanted a very quick summation and i do think you have to sort of respect you know somebody who who doesn't necessarily want to share that experience but i'll tell you one of the worst stories that i reported involved i think zero physical activity but was so disturbing this woman dawn dunning who's now a costume designer this was around 2004 in new york and she described to me how she wa- she was an aspiring actress had basically no experience happened to meet Weinstein when she was waiting tables. He took a liking to her. And she knew that he had kind of a dodgy reputation with women, but he was incredibly nurturing and really encouraging. And he even gave her and her boyfriend theater tickets. So it you know seemed totally OK. And then she was sort of manipulated into being alone in a hotel room with him. She was told, you know, his meeting's running late. You've got to go up to the room to meet him. And she gets there. And the way she described it, he was in a bathrobe. And there was this coffee table with a bunch of film contracts, like sheets of white paper sitting on the table. And she says, he said to her, I will cast you in my next three films right now. But first, you have to have three-way sex with me and somebody else. So that's not a touching story. It's not an assault story. But to me, that blew my mind when I heard it for the first time because The brazenness of the sex for work transaction. It was so explicit. Explicit in a different, I guess explicit is the right word, right? Because not explicit in like a, you know, naked bodies and sex kind of way, but explicit in a power way.
2: When you started taking all of these accounts, some of which had graphic details, some of which were more abstract, some of which occurred in different decades. How did you think about putting them together into one narrative? What, was the important stuff to get in there, and what stuff got left on the on the floor?
0: So remember that we were writing the first story under legal threat. So when you go back and you look at that first story, there's like an analogy I'm searching for. Okay, so like I was just thinking
2: know, through multiple analogies in yeah, my yeah. mind, but you know when you, <laughs> you know when
0: paleontologists and earth dinosaur bones, yes, and they. They want the whole dinosaur, right? Yeah. So, but you have to move really carefully and you have to take this little brush and you can't disturb anything. And certain parts you can see and certain parts you can't see. I think that first story is like a photograph of the dinosaur where we can see a lot of the dinosaur. We can see a lot of the essential parts, right? We have actresses. We have employees. We have company records. We have the settlements. We have some of the cover-up elements. We have powerful lawyers. Um Et cetera, et cetera. But you can't see the whole dinosaur. And I think that's – writing that story was a question of like what can we do now that is rock solid? And also now we can dismiss the legal threat because the guy, Charles Harder, who threatened to sue the Times is not even working for Weinstein anymore. But believe me, in those fevered days before publication, Weinstein had a huge kind of like crisis PR slash – Lawyer team. They were threatening to sue us to high heaven. They were responding really strongly to this. And so we had to go with our strongest material.
2: Charles Harder being the same attorney uh, that sued Gawker out of business. Yes. For you, how did the legal threat change how you approached this story, if at all?
0: It changed it a lot because we went in with the assumption from the beginning that there was going to be a legal threat. So there are certain tradecraft things, you know, you just do to be careful when you think you might be sued. Um, there are certain things you, you know, will and won't quote people on. There are statements you won't make. But part of the significance to the legal threat, and like for me now, is the memory of watching the times rise up to confront Weinstein and not be intimidated and stand up to a bully who had managed to intimidate a lot of people people over the years. And it was incredible to see. At the time, I almost wished I could tell my sources what was going on because, look, I know we live in an age where everybody's suspicious of institutions, but I am telling you, I saw the New York Times use its expertise and its rigor and its prestige to protect women and to say, this story is incredibly important, and we are not going to back down in any way. And it was it was, it was kind of an—it was just an honor to watch. I mean, I've worked there for a lot of years, and yet I found myself kind of awed by the place all over again.
2: There's only one or two journalistic institutions of that scale in America. You know, if someone came to you, a, a young reporter who was pursuing a case of this type, and said— I've got some amazing stuff. You know, I've been working on this for a year, but I work at this magazine that has a shrinking staff and has a part-time lawyer who we Skype. What would you say to someone like that who who wanted to take on something big? Do you think it's possible without the those kind of resources?
0: It's certainly harder. I think what I've been really struck by is the women coming forward during the Me Too campaign, about like specific accusers, yep. it's one thing to go on social media and say, you know, I was harassed or I was assaulted, and be general about it. But there are people who are naming specific accusers on social media and every I d- day. Yeah, and I do think like th- those those women are, those women are flying the plane alone. Like there is yep. nobody else at the cockpit. One thing that just was really satisfying about this story was being able to say to sources, hey, I'm going to use the traditions and rigor and expertise of the New York Times to tell this story and this institution can kind of make it safe. It's like a little bit like if you're going to have a really complicated operation, you want to go to the best hospital. And I wanted them to feel like we were the hospital where they were going to be safe.
2: Your stories um, – you wrote a story about Starbucks. You wrote a story about Amazon. You know, I wrote a story about Harvey Weinstein. And all three of these stories had massive ripple effects. Um, I remember seeing the CEO of Starbucks crying, I believe, on TV afterwards. The story about Amazon, I think, is the only time I've seen Jeff Jeff Bezos – appear shaken. And uh, as far as I can recall, it's kind of the only time Amazon has really pushed back in the media about anything. Um, How do you design a story to have ripple effects, to have a bigger impact than the story itself, and to stay in the news for cycles? Is that something that you think about in terms of how you report a story?
0: So it is totally true that I want to write stories that start cultural and social debates. That is like a completely fair thing. To say, I want to start productive debates. I want to start conversations. I think what those three stories have in common is that they combined something incredibly familiar with something really surprising. Readers thought they knew Starbucks. I mean, it's such like, you know, we're like intimate with Starbucks in our lives, right? It's like a place where many of us have spent a ton of time. Um, They certainly thought they knew Amazon. I mean, what could be more familiar than that, you know, Amazon Prime box coming to your door? And they felt like they knew who Harvey Weinstein was, and they certainly knew these movies. And they also thought, oh, like Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, Ashley Judd, like I know who she is. I know what her experience is. And in each of those cases, we were able to reveal something, you know, surprising or even shocking that people hadn't known about those very familiar institutions. And I think that was part of the power.
2: I noticed when I read through them all as a trio, Uh, together, they all start with a description of something happening to a person. Generally, business stories don't start with, you know, a a very visceral experience. They start with a, a lead. What is your strategy in these stories, balancing the human stories and the bigger corporate money stories?
0: I think there's a huge challenge with investigative reporting on how you can be, like, fully present as a writer on these stories because they do have to be so carefully... They are a little bit like performing surgery. And so how you perform that with elegance and power and emotion is, is I think, uh, like a sort of like next level question about the craft. But, you know, part of the familiarity does its work for you, right? Like – in all three of those stories, I think readers filled a lot of it in because they they had their own Starbucks experience. They had their own Amazon experience. They thought they knew these movies. So, like, in a way, you don't have to write that part of it. People just know it.
2: You don't have to tell people why to care.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: So is that part of your strategy when you're thinking about how can I do a story that can have those ripples? Do you design the stories to have something familiar and then something shocking inside them
0: no it's not i i mean i do think there's that common denominator with those three stories but i think it's more like this imperative i feel to be ambitious not like personally ambitious in terms of you know the jody canterness of it all but hey you know i'm lucky enough to have the seat at the new york times and in the investigative reporting group i have an amazing editor rebecca corbett And, you know, part of the pressure of the Trump era, I really, 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 really felt this after the election, is like, how do I use my journalistic resources well? I mean, there are so many things that are so messed up about the world we live in. Uh, You know, I mean, I guess that's true anytime. It's certainly true now. I've had, after the election, I had a lot of anxiety about almost like an obsession over how do I use this seat that I have.
2: What? When did you start on the story? What uh, month?
0: Like, I can't remember exactly the day. It was either the very end of May or the very beginning of June.
2: Okay, so after Trump's gotten inaugurated, um, you're less than a year out from a tape coming out in which a presidential candidate, who we didn't know at the time was going to go on to win, more or less admits to sexual misconduct on a hot mic, and that did not stop him from getting elected president was that something you were thinking about when you're thinking about exposing a pattern of sexual assault that this was something that had hit a national stage and not provoked a reaction like the reaction that's happening now
0: I certainly did but my sources really thought about it and Trump cut both ways for people on the one hand there were women and other people who said, kind of like, "This is what I can do now. Like, this is my real right. Women's March." Or, "Yeah, this is this is I'm going to make the unique." Or, I would sort of say to them, "Like, make the unique contribution that only you can make to society right, right now." Right. Um, so, for some people, that was very motivating. For other people, it was the opposite because they would say, "What does this matter? You know, Trump was elected anyway. There's no accountability." What I think is so remarkable about the last couple of weeks is the level of accountability. Um, The number of men, including Harvey Weinstein, but really not limited to him, who have been fired um, or faced really serious career consequences is extraordinary. And so I think the question I want to watch is, has something changed? And can we now say that there is definitively more accountability for sexual harassment than ever before?
2: How did you get into this stuff? What was your first uh, paid writing gig?
0: Okay. So I grew up like totally uh, like bridge and tunnel New York before it was cool. I'm from Staten Island and Queens and New Jersey. And I oh, you've,
2: you've done, you've done uh, the entire bridge and tunnel tour.
0: I've lived in four of the five boroughs. Um, but so growing up, I did not know any journalists or any authors I think my parents' fanciest friends were, like, dentists or whatever. We did have a New York Times subscription, but I did not grow up going to, like, cool literary dinner parties. And so I was always a journalism junkie, but I didn't have actually the confidence to think that I could, like, you know, write the story or be – the narrator.
2: Well, what do you mean that you are a journalism junkie? Tell me what I that would,
0: means. I read the New York Times at a, at oh. a, like a really embarrassingly uh, like early age, and I had a, a button on my backpack in high school that said, have you read the New York Times <laughs> today? And um, this was before the internet, right? So the arrival of these publications at your home, it, it was for, you know, a sort of like exurban kid, that was a portal into another world. But the idea that that I should devote my life to it, to this, or could, I did not see, and I also grew up thinking that, like, I had to get a professional degree and probably make more money than I'm making now. I'm from a Holocaust survivor family, and which I think actually played into the journalism stuff a lot later and and certainly undergirds a lot of my, you know, beliefs about investigative journalism. But I went to law school. You know, I, I... I thought I genuinely wanted to be a lawyer. I also thought that was what I was supposed to do. And in my first semester of law school, I had an epiphany that I wanted to be a journalist. And I, with the help of a friend, I was able to like essentially talk my way into an assistant job at Slate. And it was young Slate. It was Slate when it was two years old and owned by Microsoft and run by Michael Kinsley. And that was it. I never looked back.
2: How did you make the jump from that to doing featured, like real investigative reporting yourself?
0: Oh, it took years. I mean, it took. there were like a lot of stops and stages along the way. Frank Rich drafted me in 2002 or 2003 to be the arts and leisure editor of the New York Times.
2: I would be in remiss if I didn't say, listen to his long form podcast.
0: Yes. <laughs> that like practically created a mini scandal because I was 27 at the time and the Times was a much more traditional place um, than it is now in the chance that they were taking on somebody that young. And also, by the way, who had no management experience, which was, you know, like people who were worried about that, I think, had a fair point. I mean, also, it was an incredible opportunity. So I, I'm not I don't want to cast myself as the victim here. Um, and I got I mean, I got a record. I got recognition and I got my own section of The New York Times to edit. So it was incredible. Um but also, I think a taste of the criticism that I mean is now like ubiquitous. Uh, in were you were you world. were
2: people suspicious of you because you were coming from the internet?
0: Yes, that was a big part of it. I was considered a. I had never worked in print, and that was like practically scandalous. I was a web-only journalist. Um, but anyway, I survived and thrived. And then, in two, at the end of two thousand six the what became the 2008 presidential campaign was just starting and Jill Abramson asked me if I would look into this little known guy named Barack Obama and the first article I wrote about him was about Jill said what was the deal with him as the first black president of the Harvard law review and that was the first Obama story I ever wrote and then I spent really six or seven years on the question of who are Barack and Michelle Obama and it was really, like, probably, like, my critical, you know, formative experience in journalism. It it involved two presidential campaigns and a book. And also because the Obamas were so spectacularly interesting in every way, took me, you know, from, like, Afghanistan policy to, you know, how Malia and Sasha were doing um, in the White House. And I wrote a book about them. And so along the way during that period, uh, I – started working with my current editor, Rebecca Corbett, who is probably like the biggest professional force in my life. And we've now been working together for over 10 years. And it was really kind of in partnership with her that I made the transition to investigative journalism.
2: What did covering the Obamas from the, he's some guy from the Harvard Law Review to the second term of a president. um, What did you learn about covering power.
0: I think honestly part of it is that you have to be really aggressive and dig very deep. That was always competitive, always. I mean, yeah. the amount of attention on him from the very beginning was intense. I think in terms of defining what you want to write and making it distinctive and saying even though this is the story that everybody else in the world is covering, I'm like I'm going to plot a path through it. I think it's it was a good and really hard experience in where you stand vis-a-vis the people you're writing about. I mean, now I'm writing about somebody who's completely reviled, right? Like the yep. world the world has nothing good to say about Harvey Weinstein. And that was true from pretty much yes. the first day. At no point in this interview I
2: had to ask you, was it hard not to become friends with Harvey Weinstein? Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and the the experience of writing about the Obamas was like the complete opposite yeah. because Now, granted, the country is very polarized, and there are a lot of people who don't feel this way, but there was like a kind of Obama worship and hagiography that surrounded Obama from really, like really from late 2006, because that's when he was doing um, his book tour for his second book, and Obama mania was, was already in full swing, and so how to both reflect The things that were really special about the Obamas and their true achievements, while also having critical distance and independence and asking questions that, you know, Democrats didn't always want to hear, I think was a fantastic learning experience. And by the way, it did play into the gender stuff a little bit because I found the entire, like essentially the entire political, the entire world of political reporting weighted towards men in such a thorough way it was true certainly like on the campaign trail and in terms of you know who had power and presence in news organizations it was true when you looked at who was in government and then even like the gender dynamic of the presidency right and of michelle obama being this harvard trained lawyer and really talented first lady and you know a lot of my book like the sort of reporting trick of my book is focusing on michelle obama and first ladies you know, in public they get a lot of attention, but within administrations they are really second-class citizens. And the kind of, like, theory of my book is that if you understand what is happening to Michelle Obama in the White House, then you can understand, you know, a lot of what's going on in this administration. And I still believe that in reporting. I mean, with the gender reporting, I believe in women not only as subject but as tool. I believe – I mean, certainly with Starbucks and Amazon and Weinstein, if you understood what was happening to the women in those organizations, boy, could you like, in a sense, like blow open the whole organization and understand its culture much more deeply.
2: Um, you said earlier that you were trying not to become cynical, and then I think you amended it to numb. Um, how do you how do you process this personally? Um, spending the better part of a year. Uh, you know, full-time in the Harvey Weinstein world. Um, what is it like personally for you?
0: Well, my partner Megan Toohey said recently that she began to dream about Harvey and that she knew that she was, like, deeply at one with the story when she started, where he, like, appeared as a presence in her dreams. And what she said, this was during, like, the really hard part of the reporting where we were getting a lot of stuff, but it felt like an uphill battle, and we we were consumed with the anxiety of, you know, not getting to the other side and somehow, like, losing the story. Because once we – you can – now the world can understand how we felt because once we understood the material, we were like, we have – we cannot fail. We cannot fail. We have to publish. We we cannot be defeated on this. Um, So I think that's part of what – the Harvey Dream um, was about. For me, like a lot of it has just been the experience of not being able to stop working. You know, I have two kids. Um, my husband is a really busy journalist. So I think what my family would tell you is that it's been really hard for me to stop working. I mean, first of all, like the sheer volume of material. And I think when you're in the middle of the story of a story this big, the, you know, like the question of where you stop or when you even choose to, like, just take a day to spend with your kid or have dinner with a friend or watch a movie. I have have not watched a movie or read a book. I tried to watch, like, an episode or two two of TV over the summer, and I practically couldn't do it. Did you watch
2: Miramax movies prepping for this, or is that totally irrelevant? I
0: felt like I knew the ones that, you know, like, were already lodged in my memory. But I think think you get into this space where you say to yourself— I did ride my bike in Prospect Park. That really helped me clear my head. but you 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 get to this place that is not entirely healthy where you say, what could be more important in my life than like finding the next detail or nailing the next thing? Because also remember that the further you go, the more you know and there's um, it's very hard to stop.
2: Uh, I think that's a good place to end as zendi. Uh, thank you very much.
0: Thank you.
2: That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Jody Cantor for taking the time out of what is a uh, extreme schedule. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. Check out their new story, Promethea Unbound. Thank you to Courtney Harrell, who is our editor. Thanks to Angela Velez, our intern. Thank you to our sponsors, Eero. Check out Eero. They're in my house. They upload my podcasts, thanks to Eero. And of course, MailChimp, they make this show possible. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
1: Why do you run? Why does anyone